0: Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask that you would illuminate our minds and and our hearts, especially as we reflect on the arrival of the wise men, as we think of your providential protection of your son Jesus, even from wicked men like Herod. And we thank you that, uh, in your kindness, you have recorded this for us so that we might learn not just what happened when Jesus was born, but how we might rightly respond to his humble authority that has been brought forth into this world. Uh, He is our only hope, that we might submit to him and follow his lead. So help us to see what that looks like this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. All right. so the opening chapters of Matthew, we've, we've covered a little ground here, we've had the wide, we've seen the wide-ranging heritage of Jesus. Uh, he's got Jews and Gentiles in his family tree. There are men, there are women listed, there are kings, there's a carpenter. Uh, in other words, he comes from all of these types of people so that all of these types of people might actually be found in him. All right, so, so he is the savior of, of all kinds of people. We see in Joseph, when we saw this last week, the response of faith to the revelation of who Jesus is. His name means the Lord saves, and Joseph has been tasked with naming him this, and in faith he says, okay, I'm going to do what the Lord says, and and really he acknowledges the truthfulness of the Lord's words, and so he, he does. He names his son Jesus, and of course he remains faithful to Mary and does not divorce her quietly, which would have been his right to do. Joseph is a faithful man. He's eager to hear God's word and obey it. And so now we come to a, 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 the introduction of a few new characters uh, that just sort of show up. But these are some powerful men. These are well-known. Well, some of them are well-known. But they're well-versed in the, the, um, uh, the traditions of man, the knowledge, the wisdom of the world. Uh, these, are, these are people with authority. And we see two reactions come from them to the newborn king of the Jews, as Jesus is mentioned, um, referred to here. So let's, let's just kind of get bring you up to speed on who these people are. Uh, first of all, who is Herod? And I'm not making this up. I just found this in the ESV Study Bible, and I thought I would do really well just to read this to you guys. Herod, Herod I, or Herod the Great, ruled Israel and Judah from 37 to year four. BC, right because BC works in counting down mode. He was an Idumean, which means he was from the region of Edom, which when you hear Edom, especially in the Old Testament, you think Esau and his descendants and where they ended up settling. He was appointed king of the Jews under the authority of Rome. So he's not, he's not coming from any sort of lineage here of David or anything like that, but rather he's, he's really a puppet of Rome. He ruled firmly and at times ruthlessly. He murdered his own wife, ill advised. He had several sons and other relatives murdered as well. He was a master builder who restored the temple in Jerusalem. That's a good thing, I suppose. He built many theaters, cities, palaces, and fortresses. Herod's building programs included his palace at Jericho, many fortresses, a massive harbor city, and especially the temple in Jerusalem. He also financed structures, including pagan temples, throughout the Roman Empire, places like Antioch, Nicopolis, and Athens. Herod died from, uh, uh, I guess his, he, he was just ravaged by disease. Uh, he died in his palace at Jericho and was buried at a town that he named after himself, Herodium. So it's all very, very full circle for this guy. Uh, but that's, that's Herod. You talk about a powerful dude, you talk about somebody who is going to do everything he can to cling to any authority that he thinks he has, even if it's an authority granted to him, not by God through his word, but by Rome out of a desire to control God's people. Uh, Herod will do whatever it takes. The issue with him, or I think the reason why he shows up here, is not so much, though, to, to reflect on the man Herod. Um, but I think it's more, it has more to do with what he represents the the worldly and religious authority that is really attached to Herod and his name. Because you notice it's not just Herod that's mentioned, but also you hear about Jerusalem. The wise men first go to Jerusalem when they're eager to see the king of the Jews. They assume this is where we need to go first. But then in verse 3, it says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So it kind of feels a little bit like if you were talking about Washington, D.C., or you know the, the, the beltway is really at odds with what's going on in the country. We know that it's not necessarily talking about all the citizens of Washington, D.C., but rather the, the, the important ones, right? The, the people with authority and power, the people who make decisions or, or have some sort of say in matters. So Herod really represents a lot of power and authority in Jerusalem and among God's people. But really, he is a picture of Jewish nominalism, right? Kind of obeying the law with with maybe uh, the way that he appears, the way he wants to portray himself is as somebody who is the king of the Jews. But but the reality is it's, it's all it's all in service of his own prestige and glory and and personal uh, ambition. That that's that's really what Herod is all about, uh, and we'll see this really developed. In this, in this narrative, but especially in the next one, next week, when we look at what he does to eliminate uh, Jesus or anyone who might have been born around the same time. So, okay, that's Herod. Who are the wise men? The wise men are kind of a cross between, like, think Greek philosophy, like, like Plato, and, uh, and Nostradamus. You know, these ancient people who made, you know, prophetic sort of utterances and, and had these visions of things that you know, were to come in, in later days, Right? Uh they're, they're kind of a mix of those things. The, uh, the ESV Study Bible has a pretty good note on them too, which I'm also not going to reinvent. Um, in earlier times, wise men, also known as magi, were referred to priests and experts in mysteries in places like Persia and Babylon. Um, we read a lot about them like in, in the book of Daniel. You see magi show up a lot. Uh, but by this time, by the time of, of Matthew's day or, or Jesus' birth, it applied more to a wide range of people whose practices included astrology, dream interpretation, the study of sacred writings, the pursuit of wisdom, and magic. Uh, in other words, the, these guys are not a picture of biblical theology and sound doctrine. They, they, they are far from I mean, these are Eastern, pagan, uh, some people refer to them as kings. I think that's helpful for our purposes as we think of just the authority that they have and, and sort of the power that they would have had in their own, among their own culture. Um, but they're drawn, nevertheless, to pay homage to the king of the Jews by this mysterious star. We don't really know what was going on with the star. Was it some sort of a comet? Was it some sort of just supernatural light that the Lord put into the sky to draw these men out? Uh, it, we we don 't really know what was going on but but it clearly happened it's a historic fact and and they were drawn here uh to 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 really to worship they say the king of the Jews at the center of this passage though and and it's an interesting uh the, the way the passage is laid out is kind of interesting. It, it sort of begins and ends with similar language and characters and then kind of similar, similar, all the way down into the very middle of the story. Uh, the way way it works. You you start with a wise man coming in, and then it ends with a wise man going out. And then leading down into the story, we get down to the very center of it. And I think really the heart of this passage, the the key thing that's being communicated, has to do with this prophecy that is mentioned. Now, the prophecy is from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Here's what Micah's prophecy, Micah's version of the prophecy says. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Uh, that's really similar to what Matthew records here. I, I always like to just point out these sort of things, though, because especially in the Gospel of Matthew, and, and this happens in Hebrews, like we've been studying in, in uh, the sanctuary on Sunday mornings, like there's not always this perfect one-to-one transcription of, here's the Old Testament verse, here's the New Testament. I'm just going to copy and paste it over here. Our sensibility, especially if you've ever had to write a research paper, is that it has to be exact one-to-one. You have to give a perfect reference. You have to say the the page, the chapter, the book, who was the author, what edition of that book was it. We're we're really worked up by that because in our, our way of thinking, For us to really be telling the truth or to really be be adhering to the validity and truthfulness of something we have to repeat it verbatim for it to be legit and so sometimes people read something like matthew 2 verse 6 and they compare it to micah 5 verse 2 where it's clearly coming from and they panic because it implies to our western minds this is not this is not oh my gosh this is a fault in god's word this is not correct there's something missing here there's an emphasis that's not present. And the Old Testament, what, what do we do with this? Uh, I want to I ease that burden for you. This is free. All right, when, when you read the Bible, especially when you read Old Testament references or New Testament references to the Old Testament, you, you, you should not expect there to be a perfect one-for-one back-and-forth phrasing. Uh, don't expect that. Sometimes in the New Testament, the authors are using a Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And so they'll use that as their reference point. That's not exactly what's happening with Matthew. Uh, Sometimes, though, they will use, um, you you gotta think, too, they're translating through maybe even multiple languages. So the Old Testament is in Hebrew. Matthew and Jesus and, and all the men and women that you find in these Gospels, they speak Aramaic. The Gospels themselves are written in Greek. They've been translated to us into English. Right. There's a lot of layers here uh, and a lot of attempts to be really faithful to the exact wording. But, you know, language is is a pretty fluid thing. It doesn't always work exactly one to one. So that's another thing to consider. But then and I think this is what's going on with Matthew here. uh, Sometimes they will more paraphrase what they've read in the Old Testament. Because they understand there to be a meaning associated with a verse or with the surrounding context. And Matthew's not about to insert all of Micah chapter 5 into his book. And so instead, he's trying to boil in really a summary of the whole Old Testament, a summary of the whole thinking that has come out of reading Micah, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 over and over again. Right? Okay, I'm belaboring the point, but what I'm getting at is the way Matthew phrases it does tell us something about what he's trying to emphasize here. The changes that he deliberately makes. Yeah, Carolyn, you have a question? I think they are paraphrasing, but could it also be that Matthew did not have in his hand a copy of the That's a great point. Yeah, Matthew doesn't necessarily have a copy of, of Micah sitting on his desk. In fact, he probably would have had to go somewhere to go access that or ask for permission to even read it. So when you read a lot of these references and quotes in the New Testament, it's, it's, it can be kind of daunting, but it should be really encouraging to consider these people have memorized this. You know, uh, Paul's not going, oh, goodness, where, where, uh, where is it? In fact, I can't remember exactly where CBL might, but there's a point in the New Testament where I think Paul says it's written somewhere XYZ. Because he's just like, I'm not, I can't remember, which is really encouraging to me, because I'm really bad at remembering chapter and verse. But I can remember the concept, and I can generally point to where it is, and the way my brain works, I can kind of figure it out where on the page of which Bible I read it, it is. But I don't actually know where it is, you know? Um, That's right. This is the Word of God, which I think is really encouraging as well, that when you see some of these modifications or or seeming paraphrase moments, you go, okay, no, the Lord is communicating something to us, right? He's not negating His Word, but He's actually trying to show us maybe an element of this passage that doesn't naturally come to our mind if we're just reading it cold turkey. So Matthew's paraphrase of it is, And you, O Bethlehem, he drops the Ephrathah, in the land of Judah... So instead of saying, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, he just says, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. So he's really emphasizing this idea of a ruler coming out of Bethlehem. For from you shall come, here he is, a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Micah said, for, for sh- you shall come, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. My, Matthew is not as concerned with the timing of it. Instead, he's saying, "No, this will be a shepherd for my people Israel. That's who Jesus will be. Uh, that, that is how Jesus fulfills this prophetic utterance from, from Micah. Well, wh- what, what's the, what do these changes or modifications say to us? I think on the one hand, they point out that Jesus comes from a small town, and the name Bethlehem means house of bread. So, so Jesus is coming from a small little little house, tiny place, but he's, he's a big ruler. He is not among the least, right? And, and that's another way of saying, you're, you're at the very tip top. And so Jesus is, he comes from a small place of little significance, but his significance is is really, truly, it's it's infinite, right? We, we, we understand that he is the greatest, the biggest ruler to come out of any place, uh, let alone a small town like Bethlehem. But he's not just a ruler, and Matthew makes it so clear. He, he's a shepherd. He doesn't just rule with like an iron fist, but he, he's actually a shepherd. And you think of the way shepherds care for their sheep and kind of the, the, the mundane nature of that, the humility of that, the, the dirt and filth and stench of that. Uh, Jesus is not just, a, he's not just a dictator. He's not a dictator at all. He, he, he's a shepherd-like king. So Matthew, I think the point that he's making here is that in Christ Jesus, the shepherd and ruler of God's people has come. And we've been seeing glimpses of this just by looking at Jesus' genealogy, tracing his line through the houses of David and the kings uh, of his lineage, all the way down to Joseph when he's greeted by an angel of the Lord being called the son of David. We, 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 this has been telegraphed the whole time. Jesus is, he, he is a king to fulfill all the promises God made to his father David. Uh, But what does it mean for Jesus to be the shepherd and ruler of God's people and that that he is now here? I think there are a couple of implications. One is that he's humble. He is humble. In his origins, the, the wise men themselves, they assume they need to go to Jerusalem to find the king of the Jews, but that's not where the king has been born. Instead, the king is, is in Bethlehem. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us anything about the nature of Jesus' birth. If you are thinking manger and stable and cattle and shepherds and all that, you're remembering Luke. Matthew doesn't, he is not interested in that. He doesn't want to tell us about that. He figures Luke's done a good enough job. So, so the, the origins of Jesus in Matthew and the humility of his birth has a lot more to do with where he's from, where he's been born. Uh, now, Bethlehem, as we've discussed already, is the city of David. That's important to remember. But, but it's a small town. Uh, Jesus isn't coming from the center of power. He's not born under Herod's watchful, caring eye and supervision. Uh, he, he's born far, far away from the, the seats of power. He's not just humble in his origins. He, he's humble in his mission, the purpose for which he was sent, the purpose for which he came, is that he might care for the sheep. He might care for God's people in a way that a shepherd cares for, for his flock. There's some humility. There's a great deal of humility in that. Um, and of course, there's so much more we could say, even just the fact that God Almighty became man, and not just man, but a baby. I mean, he was born helpless into this world, utterly dependent on Mary and Joseph to provide for him. All right, uh, That's... that's that's unbelievable humility, unbelievable condescension that Jesus would know this, agree to this, and step into this very scenario. Mary and Joseph aren't rich. They, they do not have any authority or power in the world. Mary is, a, is probably a teenager. Uh, Joseph is not in the most lucrative business that there is as a carpenter, although it's important, right? Uh, Jesus everything, everything that we know about him so far uh, just drips with humility. But he's not only humble. He's not just the shepherd. He is too. He's also the ruler of God's people. Uh, So, so he has a certain divine authority with him, a divine authority, a divine glory that's associated with him and his reign and his rule. Uh, It reminds me of Philippians chapter two, verses five through 10. This is a uh, really well-known passage about the humility of, of Christ. Uh, I'll read it for you uh, just to kind of stoke those uh, embers there. Uh, Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 5, Paul has been talking to the Philippians about their need to be humble towards one another, to care for one another, not to be selfish, but but look to the interests of others. And he says, have this mind among yourselves. This is is something that is accessible to you because it is yours, he says, in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, um, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we would add, based on Matthew, right, born in the likeness of an infant. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If Jesus was born, we know, not just to be a baby, but to live a holy and righteous life. Paul's pointing that out here. He, he, was, he was obedient. His obedience extended to the furthest extreme possible, the obedience to the point of death, where he laid down his life for his people that they might actually have life in him, right? So, so Jesus's humility, it spans his entire life from birth to death. He took on flesh and He remains in the flesh. He still has a human body. He he doesn't do away with that now that he's accomplished his mission. Even though it is finished, he remains identifying with us even to the even into eternity. Therefore, verse nine, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So Philippians 2 really ties these two things together well. The humility of Jesus, but also the glory, the authority, the divine nature of Jesus. Both these things are, are clearly seen here in Philippians chapter 2. And I think it, it, in some ways it kind of works as like a, like a hymn for what's taking place here in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, Jesus is humble, but he has authority. He has divine authority and power and majesty and glory and might. And yet in all of that, he condescends. He comes to us as a baby, really helpless and subject to uh, actually some pretty wicked people out there in the world, including men like Herod, as we'll see. So because of these things, though, because of his humility and because of his power and authority, Jesus actually is truly the, the perfect Savior of God's people. We just don't have him going to the cross if he's not humble. But we also don't have a cross that means anything if he doesn't have divine authority right? We need both of these things to be true. We need him to be a shepherd who cares about his sheep, and we need him to be a king who goes to war to protect and save his people. And Jesus is both of those things. He's both of those things, and we see that displayed at the cross, but we see a hint of that in his birth. But here's the thing. Acknowledging these things about Jesus comes at a cost, and that's what is taking place here in this story. We see the reflections and the reactions of two groups or two types of people as they witness and consider what it might mean for Jesus to actually be the king of the Jews. So acknowledging this comes at a cost and so the narrative gives us these two reactions of these two types of people. We've got Herod and Jerusalem on the one hand and then we've got the wise men, the Magi, on the other. Let's consider Herod and Jerusalem at first. It says that in verse 3, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. See, Herod is so out of sync with God's plans that he does not know where the king of the Jews even is. And what's ironic is that Herod technically is the king of the Jews. I mean, that would have sort of been his title. The Romans would have given him. And and when the wise men show up and they say, where is the king of the Jews? He says, the what? The who? I don't know. I didn't know there was such a thing. So he's out of sync with God's plans. It's not a great look if you claim to be the king of God's people. He's also out of touch with God's word. I guess you could say these things are pretty related. But you notice how he, it's almost you can hear the desperation in his voice as he scrambles to rally to himself all the scribes, all the priests, all the lawyers in the land. He says, guys, I need you guys, I need you to tell me exactly what is going on here. What is the nature of this child? What does the Bible say about this stuff? I don't, I never really looked into it myself. I don't really have time or interest. I never really thought I'd need to look back at these texts. Can you help me to understand what it is that is going on right now? It's not because he's genuinely curious or like, whoa, God is visiting his people? The king of the Jews is here? This is fantastic news. I can't wait to abdicate the throne. That's not his interest. His interest rather is, somebody tell me who this guy is. And, and, and the rest of the chapter, he, he wants to know who and where Jesus is so that he can eliminate him. Herod is out of sync with God's plans. He's out of touch with God's word and you notice, I mean, this is very telling, but in verse 8, he, he offers to the wise men, he says, tell me where the boy is when you find him, and uh, I, I, because I want to come and worship him myself. Mm-hmm. Even his, his attempt at, to worship, or his offer to worship Jesus, is really a means to an end, which is his own glory and security as king. I mean, Even, even his worship is false, which is really... Really interesting when you contrast that with these Eastern, pagan, palm-reading wise men who in all of their backwardness still know that when you see Jesus, you bow down and worship. We'll talk more about them in a second. Here's the point. Herod's plans and Jesus' mission cannot coexist. They cannot what Herod wants for himself, the glory that he wants only for himself, and the glory that is, that is due and owed to Jesus, they can't, these can't mingle. There's only one way that this works. And it's if Jesus is the one who re- receives all the glory king of the Jews. So there's Herod, there's Jerusalem, there's the, the seats of power. That's their reaction. That's, that's how they respond to this great, otherwise great announcement, is that they are troubled by it. The Magi, however, they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now think about this. Matthew could have just said they were really happy. He could have just said the wise men rejoiced, but they didn't just rejoice. They rejoiced exceedingly. And they didn't just rejoice exceedingly, but they rejoiced exceedingly with joy. Have you ever rejoiced without joy? It's kind of like roped into the Word. These things go together. But Matthew really wants us to understand, oh, they rejoiced with, with joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with joy. And not just any kind of joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Herod doesn't know anything about this. He he, he cannot even put his mind in a place even close to what the wise men are experiencing. Verse 10 and 11, they point out the joy of the wise men. It also mentions that they worshipped. They worshipped. And so they, they, they demonstrate a genuine desire to honor the king of the Jews. And you may be asking, well, does this mean that That the wise men are saved like do they have a saving knowledge of jesus i don't think that's matthew's point necessarily i i I don't think we can draw that conclusion well what i think matthew is pointing us to is is that that here you have these these backwards pagan kings who are behaving in a way that even herod the king of the jews couldn't fathom and that, I think, is meant to highlight more the failure and frailty of God's people than it is anything else. They give such deference to the newborn king. They fell down, it says. They worshipped. They offered him gifts. They, they brought gifts with them for an incredible journey, knowing they would do this. Now, we know the only, there's only one right way to respond to the good news of who Jesus is. We saw that demonstrated by Joseph so well last week. The only way to really respond to the news of who Jesus is, that the Lord saves, is through faith in Jesus. But by comparing Herod to the wise men, we are exposed to an important element of the coming of Christ, which is that his humble authority will always be at odds with those who seek their own glory. It's just like there will always be enmity. There will always be division here between Jesus' humility and authority and and the desires of the the glory of man. Um, even foreigners like the wise men, and I, I use that word, I recognize that's kind of it feels like a weird word. But you gotta understand, like the way that that, that these wise men would be perceived in the ancient world, these, these are not these are people who are not from here. They do not understand our ways. They do not know us. They do not know the 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 Word of God. yet. Yeah, but even them, in their foreign culture, they bow down to King Jesus. They offer him royal gifts. But Herod and the powers that be in Jerusalem can't worship or rejoice because they're troubled by Jesus and the loss of power and prestige that that he represents to them. Which is really ironic. Because then here we have Jesus, the humble shepherd king, and he is a threat not to the lowly, not to those who humble themselves before him, but rather, he's a threat to the so-called mighty and powerful who are incapable of even finding the baby, let alone killing him. And you, just, you see this? Jesus, the, the humble shepherd king of his people, comes to earth as a baby, subject to all the things that babies are subject to, right? Baby Jesus had gas. Baby Jesus needed his diaper to be changed. Baby Jesus could not speak for himself or fend for himself or defend himself in any way. In his human nature, Jesus is fully a baby here. And that baby is the greatest threat that King Herod can imagine. Because that baby is the humble king of God's people. And Herod can't live with that. These things will always be at odds. Those who think of themselves as powerful will always be threatened by Jesus. I'm reminded of Proverbs 3, 34, which says that towards the scorners, the Lord is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. And Think of the humility of Joseph and Mary and the favor that the Lord showed them by allowing them to care for and raise and protect and serve this this baby, the Son of God. Um, think of the humility that that is theirs. Now, it may be easy for us to read this passage and to think of Herod and to think of the wise men and to kind of read ourselves out of it because these guys have power and authority and might and money and wealth and wisdom and access to things that we can't possibly imagine, even even today. Uh, Don't read yourself out of it, though. I want to just say this again. Those who think of themselves as powerful will always be threatened by Jesus. And that has a pretty broad application to, to all kinds of people not just people with actual like, political authority. And so uh, the, a question that I think is worth just concluding with here, as we think about this, have you humbled yourself, have we humbled ourselves, before Christ the King? Or do we cling to our own glory? That's something that, that all of us have to wrestle with as we read this passage, as we think about this. And here's the thing, clinging to your own glory and, and power and, and might as you see it can be really subtle. It doesn't necessarily look like the kind of things that Herod does, but it can look like trusting your instincts rather than submitting to God's word. That's, that's really at the heart of all of this, isn't it? Even Herod knows, I need to hear what the word of God says about these things. He brings the scribes and, and, and lawyers in to explain it to him. Right, but, but what does the Lord say, and what does your heart say? Okay, there's a battle that's raging there then. Ever since Genesis 3, when the serpent questioned, did the Lord really say? I mean, there, there's always been this hesitation in fallen man of going with our gut, which is so easy to do because it just seems so right to just listen to your heart. Think of how many songs I've just quoted by saying those words. Um. Rather than submitting to God's word, that's, that's, that's challenging. That doesn't jive with our nature. But that's one way that we assert our glory over against the, the humble authority of Jesus. Another way that we can assert our glory is by questioning God's faithfulness and goodness. If things aren't going our way, I've been there, right? Right? Where you recognize a desire for things that don't seem to be happening—that that maybe they're not—they're not bad or or sinful in any way—but you think if God really was good and faithful, this would be going differently. This would look a certain way to me, right? You know, we we see that clearly in Herod's life, and we can instantly recognize that here's this prideful, uh, arrogant man setting himself against uh, setting himself up against the God of the universe. But, but just, just scale it back to your own heart and recognize the times where you have maybe been less eager to go to the Lord because you felt like His faithfulness to you was in question. Because what you wanted or what you perceived to be wisest or best for you wasn't what the Lord seemed to be agreeing with. And that, that's the way of Herod. That's the way of, of the, power that, the powers that be in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Another way that this works itself out is by forsaking the gospel and trying to earn God's favor by good works or habits. Right? By, by thinking, okay, what can I do to merit God's favor and, and love in my life? Well, I know, I'll, I'll do this, I've got this, I can, I can think that, I can pray this way. I Look at all these things that I can accumulate and, and kind of buy the Lord's attention and favor. You can imagine Herod would really, really loved a way for him to write a check that the Lord would have said, you know what? Okay, king of the Jews, you, you get to be him. You bought it. But, but there's just nothing that Herod can offer. There's nothing that we can bring to the Lord to earn his favor. That's something that he gives by his grace. And it's something that's purchased for us by the humble servant, King Jesus. In his death on the cross, he asserts for us what we need and what we cannot in any way provide for ourselves. And he does it in his humility, and he does it out of the authority that God has given him. And that is to our benefit. That's something for us to, to rest in, and really actually to rejoice in, like, like these wise men. So instead, we should consider the wise men, and we should consider their example. But as believers in Jesus, then we, this is, I think, some of the ways that this can look. I think on the one hand, we, we should rejoice in the Lord. Finding joy in Him, and not in ourselves. Right? Not looking to our own glory, not looking to our own personal plans and, and, and uh, uh, schemes, but looking to, the, looking to the Lord and rejoicing in Christ. And that's a discipline. That, that doesn't, just, it doesn't just happen. You know, that, that's something that you... You you lean more into, and it's something too that I think the Lord works in us by weaning us from the joys of this world and and wooing us to His Son over time. Maybe in in large spurts, you know, where it's just, oh yeah, we're, we're, we're seeking after Christ wholeheartedly for seasons, and then sometimes it comes in little gradual periods of our lives where we are slowly just more aware that the things that we've been finding joy in aren't actually... They're not actually related to Christ, but maybe related more to ourselves. And we, we, we forsake those things, and we, we say, no, I want to I find my joy in Christ. What else do the wise men do? They worship the Christ. We, we likewise, I think, are pointed here to seeking His exaltation, not ours. Finding joy in Jesus, not in ourselves, but also exalting Him not ourselves, pointing others to Him. How, how can we do that? How can we go about that on a regular basis? You know, how, how do we speak of the Lord? How do we speak of the gospel when we're with people who aren't believers or when we're with people who are believers? What, what are the things that we point their, direct, their attention to? How do we direct them to Christ? Is it in a way to exalt ourselves? Oh yeah, I'm doing great. Or is it a way of exalting the Lord. Now the Lord has been faithful to me. Look at what the Lord is doing in my life. Um, finally, I think we can be like the wise men and we can uh, honor Jesus appropriately by offering to Him our treasures. And really by treasuring Him above all else. That's, that's what... That's what takes place. When we lay down our treasures at his feet and we say, no, I want to yield my life to you. I want to, I want my house to be of service to you. I want all the the ways I use my car, the way I spend my time, all my money. I want to, I want you to have the first dibs on all of this. I want you to have the say and how all these things are used and spent for your name, right? When we, when we yield our treasures to him, it actually shows that we treasure him above everything else. You can think of the, the parables that we find, I, I, I'm pretty sure actually later on in Matthew, you know, treasuring things up in heaven, Keep, you know, store your treasures in heaven rather than here on earth. What he's pointing at, what Jesus is pointing us to, is really ultimately finding our joy and our treasure in him and letting that actually outweigh all the other earthly things that we might be tempted to put all of our stock in. And instead, yielding those things to him and treasuring him above all. That, that's the only right way to respond to the, the shepherd king of God's people. The humble, the humble ruler of his people. It's for our good. right? Because the only way, the only, the only, the only threat that, that the humility of Jesus brings is to those who are too prideful to yield to him. Uh, so let's, let's humble ourselves before him. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, in your kindness, you sent your son to us, not as a man, not as a teenager, not even as a a thinking, conscious child, but as a baby. And that, that in the midst of all of this, we see what an incredible threat to the powers that be, even baby Jesus is. Surely then, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, we, we ought to yield everything to Him. We ought to point everyone that we can to Him, especially our own hearts. Lord, help us to seek His glory. Help us to rejoice in Him. Pray that we would, we would give all of our treasures to Him, that we might find Him to be the greatest treasure. Like the wise men, that we might seek Him out across distant lands just to find, uh, just to find Him and know Him. Lord, we pray that you would be honored by us and how we live and and especially this time of year as we get so many opportunities to speak to these things with one another, with our friends, with our families. Um, Pray that we would be faithful to you to honor and glorify your son and to seek his kingdom uh, that it might come in this earth. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen.